welcome to Ruth week nine and this one is matter settled and it's taken from Ruth 4 1 through 12 but before we read that let's open in prayer father we just thank you for bringing us again together today and let's ask that you would uh, empty me of me Lord and fill me with the fullness of you that I may um, express your words and to, the, to these hearers, and I ask that you would be glorified through this, Lord, and that we would be most satisfied, and we just ask that um, we would be a changed people from taking listening to your word and taking it to heart, and we ask this all, Lord, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Ruth 4, 1 through 12, I'm going to begin by reading the scriptures, and here we go. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so, but if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On that day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it yourself, and you removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Epaphrath and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. The Holy Word. In our passage for today, we see Boaz taking the initiative and immediately convening a court at the city gate, just as he promised Ruth. Like Naomi and Ruth, on their return to Bethlehem, Boaz is resolute in discovering if the nearer kinsman redeemer will take what is offered to him, and he wastes no time in his actions, hightailing it to Bethlehem's city gate in hopes of bringing the dilemma to a quick conclusion. He didn't want to linger or waste time. Business and civic affairs of the people were always transacted there. The threshing floor would have been located below the level of the city itself, and for that reason Boaz went up to the gate. 
The area around Bethlehem was quite hilly. The nearer kinsman redeemer approached the gate where Boaz was sitting, and he invites the, this unnamed redeemer to sit down. Boaz's next move was to get ten of the elders of the town to come sit down and witness the proceedings of this legal transaction. This was then very much a man's world. The public decision to be made on this important matter, which would profoundly affect the two women, Naomi and Ruth, bringing it to this point, would be made by these men. It is quite likely that Boaz himself was one of the elders, since he was a man of standing, we are told in Ruth 2.1. I think it's interesting to note as well that a man's name, this man's name, this unknown person, was not mentioned in Scripture. In strict adherence to the Hebrew law, in a carefully planned strategy, Boaz unfolds the elements of the case step by step to this unnamed kinsman who had first rights to redeem Naomi's land. It reminds me of Jesus' words in Matthew, in Matthew 10, 16. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Boaz first explains that Naomi had a field for sale and that it belonged to her late husband, Elimelech. There's no mention yet of Ruth. That was in verse 5. It is quite possible that the property had been mortgaged for money to buy bread when the famine became so severe in, in the land. Next, Boaz states that he thought it necessary to bring the matter to the kinsman's attention, suggesting that he buy it in the presence of the elder witnesses. If he should choose to redeem it, then do so, but if not, let Boaz know as he was next in line. Without pause, this unnamed kinsman readily agreed. Oh, you got land? Yeah, I'll take the land. I'll take the land. It's just, this so demonstrates what was in his heart, really. I would like to interject something at this point to put some flesh kind of on the section of Holy Rut. Let's think for just a minute why Boaz was so hasty in this matter. Why was he so fond of the match? Ruth was not rich, rather a poor foreigner. Could it be that he had grown accustomed to her smile, accustomed to her looks, accustomed to her face, as the song goes? Could it be that he was totally enamored with her high character? Could it be that he indeed was very interesting in marrying Ruth himself, even early on, so much so that he had already checked out who was first in line for redeeming the land and espousing his catch. He had obviously been overwhelmed at her gestures when in Ruth 3.10 he exclaims, The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, which, whether rich or poor, and now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do all that you ask. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it's true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if, the, if he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. The spark could have started even earlier in the story as well, when Boaz first noticed her. And we are told, as we are told in Ruth 2.10, at this point she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, Why have I found favor, such favor, in your eyes, 
that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law. Nothing went unnoticed since the death of her husband, how you left your father and your mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, I know I'm a bit of a romantic, but could it be that this man of standing, this man of stellar character, had his hopes and heart set on marrying this young widow from Moab? Yet motivated by a stronger love for God, exhibited in all that he did, all that he did, he chose chooses rather to lay his Isaac down, so to speak, and trust God with the results. Had he taken matters into his own hands, he certainly could have done something to Ruth on the threshing floor, or perhaps married her in hope that the nearest kinsman wouldn't ever find out, or that he wouldn't care. Instead, he does things in strict adherence to the Hebrew law, just as we are to do things strictly in adherence to God's word. And he leaves it in God's hands, confident that the outcome will be the very best for him. Amen to that. I wonder, are we holding on to an Isaac? Do we seek to take matters into our own hands? Manipulation is just another form of deceit. I am reminded of King Asa in Second Chronicles, who after a stellar start, he crumbles before the finish line, relying on allies rather than the Lord our God. We're in this for the long haul, girls. It's a bad decision. We are to be as Abraham and perhaps Boaz, who both lay their Isaacs down, so to speak, at the altar of sacrifice and selflessness. I'm confident to some degree we all struggle in this area. Either we have something we are earnestly hoping for or earnestly hoping against. Something that is foremost in our hearts and minds. Or something that perhaps we have longed for or hoped against. Get it out an index card and write down what your Isaac is. Could possibly be. Of course, this is between you and the Lord. Are you willing to lay it in God's all-powerful and all-sufficient hands and leave the results with him, knowing that he has our best interest at heart? Always, always, always. Place it in your Bible and pray about it. Every time it comes to mind, and give it to him. And give it to him again. And give it to him again and again, if need be. The problem with laying down a live altar like ourselves as we are living sacrifices is that living sacrifices often get off the altar. Perhaps write the verses down in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Or Isaiah 26, 3 and 4, which it says, You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord, is the rock eternal. Or in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. 
He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Look for the door of escape. Or some other promise of scripture of your choosing that speaks to your heart. God's word is personal. And he wants you to search the scriptures and know the truth and pray them back to him. Write it on the card as well. And when you begin to fret over it, read and pray instead. Continually giving it back to God and asking him to be glorified through the process. Will always leave the best results. Always. That's trusting. He has your best interest at heart. It's trusting the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Um, and the voices from the past, and I just dropped all my papers on the ground here, so I'm going to pick them up and get this. And the voices from the past is a Puritan book. It's so good. It's a devotional book. Uh, Thomas Case writes, and we know and for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, is Romans 8, 28. In a word, whatever affliction we bear shall be for our soul's gain. God's rod and his love always go together. This is a sweet and blessed lesson indeed. It quiets, quietens the heart and supports the soul under its burdens. What we lose in our bodies, we gain in our souls. What we lose in our estates, we receive back in grace. Thus we can bear up and comfort ourselves in our deepest sorrows. When God takes away creature comforts by secret impressions of love upon the heart, he strengthens the soul. We become more than conquerors through him who loved us. God teaches us in affliction that one thing is necessary. Just like he said about Mary when Martha was crumbling and grumbling and crying about Mary not helping her with the dinner. He tells Martha, Mary has chosen the one thing that's necessary and it will not be taken from her. He is the one thing that's necessary. Affliction reveals how mistaken we are about our must-be's and our necessities. <laughs> In our health and liberty, we think this thing must be done. We think riches and honors are necessary, and we must have our estates and lay up large portions for our children. But in the day of adversity, when death looks us in the face and God causes the horror of the grave, the dread of the last judgment, and the terrors of eternity to pass before us, then we put our mouth in the dust and sigh, Oh, how I have been mistaken. I have fed upon ashes. And my deceived heart has turned me aside. We can now see how the pardon of sin, an interest in Christ, a sense of God's love, and the assurance of glory are the only indispensables. Christ alone is the one thing necessary, and all others are but maybes at best. Back to the narrative. The nameless Redeemer's positive, ready response had to have left Boaz with dashed hopes, yet not for long, because he was a man with a plan with a pocket comb. I mean, mm -hmm. he was ready, as Jody Messina would say. Scripture states, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is the tree of life. There was a ram in the thicket, seemingly almost as a postscript. Boaz adds that along with the land, 
The Redeemer must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess for a wife. She was part of the package. As, as a son to whom the property would belong, should be raised up to perpetuate the family name of Elimelech. Just as quickly as he had accepted the offer, he now rejects it for fear of endangering his own family, his selfish ambition. The land, he had thought, would improve his estate, but the wife would endanger it. Therefore, he refused his right of purchase, forfeiting the right to Boaz. Like Esau, who could, have on, who could only live in the present moment. I need the stew now, not tomorrow. I need it now. I'm hungry now. I want it now. And sold his birthright to his brother Jacob. It was as if this nameless man did not even consider his God-ordained responsibility. This was part of the law. And relinquished his rights in lieu of present gratification. And it, is a it was a disgraceful thing. The law of the land regarding kinsmen redeemers is, redeemers is found in Deuteronomy. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother, so that his name will not be blighted out of Israel. From Israel. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders of the town at the town gate and say, My husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of his town shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, This is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. That, line's, that man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. In Deuteronomy 25, 5-10. Of course, there were no living brothers, as in this case, it follows the next closest of kin. When the unnamed kinsman declines his rights to redeem the land, Boaz redeems it and joyfully acquires Ruth for marriage. He does so in the midst of ten witnesses, so that there is no question regarding the integrity of his actions. I love the way he's so upfront, out there with everything. He's not hidden agenda, no hidden agenda. Interestingly, the central theme of the book of, of Ruth is redemption. The Hebrew word for redemption occurring 23 times within this short little book. Ruth may be considered a type of the Christian church. While Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, is a type of Christ, who is our redeemer. If this nameless kinsman had lost a good bargain, a good estate, and a good wife too, he only had himself to thank for it, not considering it better while Boaz thank, will thank him graciously for making the way clear to that which he valued and desired above anything. It reminds me of Orpah. Who kissed it all the way oh all the way when she left Naomi. The legal transaction was finalized not by signing a paper, but by a dramatic, symbolic act that others would witness and remember. The passing of the sandal symbolized Boaz's right to walk in the land as his own property. After giving his sandal to Boaz, the unknown kinsman moved from the scene and into Nomity, just like Orpah. He never heard from him again. 
But the name of Boaz has been remembered in all succeeding generations. How like God. You cannot outgive him either. Whatever meager portion you give, he so abundantly blesses that you wonder you're left wondering why you weren't open handed the whole time. Excitedly Boaz moved quickly to complete the transaction. He claimed and received the right of redemption both for Elimelech's land and for Ruth, who was the only widow left capable of giving birth to a son who would perpetuate the family name. Boaz called the elders to witness the transaction as he took possession of Naomi's land and announces a marriage contract between himself and Ruth the Moabitess. There was no evidence of reluctance to call Ruth a Moabitess. I love that as he respected her as a worthy person of the highest character. He intended in marrying her to preserve her memory of the dead and that the name of Malon, though he left no son to maintain it, by this means may be preserved. Indeed, he could raise a son to continue the name Elimelech and of Elimelech's son, Malon. Interestingly, in verses 9 and 10, Boaz mentions all the family members again except Orpah, who had also faded into nominee along with the nameless nearer kinsman. Interestingly as well, we should observe that because Boaz did this honor to the dead, as well as the kindness to the living God, God did him the honor of bringing him into the genealogy of the Messiah, by which his family was dignified above all the families of Israel. While the other kinsman, who was so much afraid of diminishing himself and his family and marring his inheritance by marrying the widow, has his name, family, and inheritance buried into oblivion and disgrace. Like I said, you cannot outgive God. Our Lord Jesus is our Goel, our kinsman redeemer, our eternal redeemer. Like Boaz, he looked with compassion on the desperate state of the fallen human race. At vast expense, he redeemed the heavenly inheritance for us, which was mortgaged by sin and forfeited into the hands of divine justice, and which we would never have been able to redeem ourselves. Indeed, Boaz is a beautiful illustration of the Lord Jesus Christ, who became mankind's kinsman redeemer and she makes things right before God the Father for those who put their trust in him. Though not stated, it may be assumed that with Ruth, Boaz also took responsibility for Naomi. This logically followed from the commitment Ruth had made to her mother-in-law. This was also later confirmed by the Bethlehem women in verse 15. The elders gave willing witness to this redemption transaction. They blessed Boaz with the desire that the Lord make Ruth a fertile mother. Their mentioning Rachel and Leah was significant. Rachel, named first, had been barren for many years before she bore children. Similarly, Ruth had been barren in Moab. The elders also prayed that Boaz would have standing Hael in Epaphra, Bethlehem. This word Hael meaning valor, worth, ability is used of Boaz in 2.1 and Ruth in 3.11. The elders prayed that Boaz would be famous in Bethlehem. <laughs> God overabundantly answered their prayers, as many have witnessed. They also prayed for numerous and distinguished progeny for Boaz, 
This prayer acknowledged that children are a gift from God, offspring from the Lord, as Psalm 127 says. Sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward for him, like heiress in the hands of a warrior, or sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies at the gate. Little did they realize that from this union would issue Israel's greatest kings, including David and the eternal King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Perez may have been named here because of the Leverite connection with Tamar, who tricked Judah into fathering children when he refused her, his third son, and because Perez's descendants had settled in Bethlehem, and Perez was an ancestor of Boaz. Lord, I love the way you work. Let's close in prayer. Father, we just thank you for this beautiful love story. We just thank you for how it all played out in such beauty, Lord. And we just ask that you would just help us to meditate and think about this today. Lord, help us to, to just rely on you, that you will lead us and guide us and trust in you with all our hearts, Lord. Always for our good, always for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.